From Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. On today's show, a look back at the critical news and events of 2018 from the lens of We the People. We spend the hour with historian Gerald Horn. Perhaps because of this so-called Russiagate scandal, folks might have neglected the reality that relations between Washington and Moscow are headed south. They're very bad. And so from the Cold Wars to climate change to the passing of the Queen of Soul, all that and much more is coming up. Look around, look next to you, look behind you. We are the movement. All of the people who stood up and said, me too. All of the people who said, we believe survivors. All of the people who took off the work, who are watching at home, who are standing in the rain. This is the movement. There are climate deniers and carbon and nuclear energy profiteers. Shame on you. 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 Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam. And I'm determined to feel encouraged for 2019 as we look back on so much news that is discouraging from 2018. Even as I speak from Washington, D.C., the United States federal government remains partially shut down with public workers either working without being paid or in essence being laid off with no pay. There is outrage at the death of a second migrant child, eight-year-old Felipe Gomez Alonso from Guatemala, in the custody of U.S. officials. And to take a serious line from the comedian Michelle Wolf, Flint, Michigan still does not have clean water. For our look back at 2018, I'm joined by On the Ground's geopolitical analyst, Gerald Horn, professor of history and African-American studies at the University of Houston, and the author of more than three dozen books, including the forthcoming Jazz and Justice, Racism and the Political Economy of the Music. Welcome back to On the Ground, Gerald. Thank you for inviting me. Well, every week we, I mean, there's a big world that we cover and there's so many topics. So where do you want to start for your biggest story of 2018? Well, I would say the story that's driving the United States right now and driving the White House is this new Cold War with China, enunciated by two speeches by Michael Pence, the U.S. Vice President in Washington on October 4th and Papua New Guinea. On November 17th, it's led to a trade war that's going to shape the U.S. economy. It's already sending Wall Street into a tailspin in terms of the Dow Jones stock average. It's led to jousting of the militaries in the South China Sea. It's also shaping other aspects of U.S. foreign policy. I don't think you can begin to understand the overtures to North Korea and Chairman Kim, in particular at the Singapore summit in June 2018, without understanding Mr. Trump trying to work out some sort of understanding with North Korea to put further pressure on China. Uh, likewise, with regard to the announcement of withdrawal of U.S. forces from Syria and a slashing of U.S. forces in Afghanistan, I think that that's part of the Trump team effort to clear the deck so that there can be a clear-eyed focus on China. And I dare say that this is not going to end well. I actually have two pieces of that Pence speech before the Hudson Institute and 
let's hear a part of it uh, where he's actually talking about the military. Chinese security agencies have masterminded the wholesale theft of American technology, including cutting-edge military blueprints. And using that stolen technology, the Chinese Communist Party is turning plowshares into swords on a massive scale. China now spends as much on its military as the rest of Asia combined. And Beijing has prioritized capabilities to erode America's military advantages on land, at sea, in the air, and in space. China wants nothing less than to push the United States of America from the Western Pacific and attempt to prevent us from coming to the aid of our allies. Okay, so that's Pence speaking at the Hudson Institute in October. And he goes on from there to highlight these skirmishes that have occurred between the United States and China in the South Seas. Is is the Cold War you're talking about escalating? Well, do you mean is it going to go to a hot war? Let's hope not. But in any case, I think that the detention in Canada of the chief financial officer of Huawei, the Chinese telecommunications giant and a keen competitor to both Apple and Cisco, is part of the kind of guerrilla warfare that's taking place right now on the part of the United States. Here is another clip from Pence talking about technology. As we speak, Beijing is employing a whole-of-government approach using political, economic, and military tools, as well as propaganda, to advance its influence and benefit its interests in the United States. China is also applying this power in more proactive ways than ever before to exert influence and interfere in the domestic policy and politics of this country. Okay, so you heard that. I suppose that this really ties into the kind of economic warfare aspect of what you're talking about. It also ties into the allegation made by Mr. Trump at his speech at the United Nations a few months ago, where he sought to suggest that it was China that was actually involved in interference in U.S. elections. There's also enormous pressure on U.S. universities to cut their ties with China. Uh, Many of the leading universities in the United States, including Duke, uh, for example, in North Carolina, have very close ties to the People's Republic of China. And of course, China has sponsored these Confucius Institutes, which help to sponsor Chinese language study at U.S. universities. And there is a pressure on these universities to boot out these Confucius Institutes. Wow. Well, when I saw your concern about the new Cold War with China, it it really made me link it to my top story for the year, which is the climate catastrophe, basically. And China is used by the Trump administration to justify inaction on climate change. And Trump, even after the tremendous devastating fires in California and the crises we've had in previous years with Puerto Rico and Houston and Florida, of course, he's continuing to call climate change a Chinese hoax. But I can say, though, that also this year, um, despite his inaction and the inaction by these 
major polluting corporations and other Western states, there is the rise of these activist environmental movements such as Extinction Rebellion, which is spreading from the UK, and also the Sunrise Movement, which we discussed before here, that led the sit-in at Nancy Pelosi's office on Capitol Hill. So I just relate that to the Chinese issue because Trump has seemed to blame them for kind of creating what he calls a hoax. Well, it also came up, you may recall, at the COP24 meeting in Poland, that is to say the United States trying to blame China for its own inaction. And there's another issue, too, that may seem far afield, but I'll mention it anyway, which is that uh, keep an eye on these billionaires like Jeff Bezos of Washington and Seattle and Richard Branson of the UK and Elon Musk of California, who are sponsoring space exploration because it may sound like science fiction, but it it is in a sense that uh, they're exploring other planets as they're trashing this one. And so they have this demented dream of escaping into outer space as the left of us are left to fry and drown on planet Earth. Yeah, I, I've actually been inspired recently to like write a poem inspired by uh, Gil Scott Heron's Whitey on the Moon. <laughs> and there was going to be something like Jeff, Jeff Bezos is on Mars. <laughs> so what's next? What's the next story? Yeah, I, I think a, a story that was of enormous uh, cultural significance was the death and funeral in Detroit of Aretha Franklin. And I think it was important not only because of her cultural and political significance, being a soldier in the anti-Jim Crow movement, but also because it put the spotlight on Detroit uh, and and also put the spotlight on the Charles Wright Museum of African American Culture and History, which is a real jewel that rarely gets publicity. And in that context, I'd also mention the recent passing of Nancy Wilson, uh, yet another singer and soldier in the civil rights movement. And since we're talking about arts and culture, I should mention cinema and the impact not only of Black Panther, but the article in the New York Times a few weeks ago that suggested that black Klansmen, and to a degree get out, made a significant impact in terms of earning money abroad. And this is changing the minds of these moss-backed Hollywood executives who have conspired to keep black movies from going abroad on the flawed premise that they don't make money abroad. Uh, Obviously, that's ridiculous. And I would also give a special shout-out to Sorry to Bother You by Boots Riley, writer and director, which in many ways, ideologically, was a real breakthrough in terms of popular cinema. I had my criticisms of Black Panther. I still can't get out of my mind one of the final images of the the villain being kind of shot down and from a distance. And it remains in my mind as similar to kind of like a cop killing, you know, watching like a video, one of these like uh, handheld videos that we see that are documenting, you know, our kind of being you know, gunned down by the police. But despite that, I mean, I have to admit, though, that coming through the entire year now and then seeing on Halloween so many young children, young black children dressed up as Black Panther or, you know, one of the other characters from the movie, 
you know, I realized that it's made a tremendous positive influence and impact on young children. I have a clip of one of the stars of Black Panther, Denai Guerrera, talking about the images of Africa depicted in in the movie. I thought that it, it really brought to light beautiful components of, of women in the, from the African context of the power of this very unseen kingdom that, uh, you know, it's this sort of notion that I think a lot of folks who are from the continent love, which is the idea that we are actually allowed to see a country that prosperous, like the country that was not affected by all the, uh, you know, outside influences that came onto the continent and colonized it and, and things that are still massive wounds we still deal with and to see one one part of the continent that you know is of course mythical but what a beautiful myth that it, it was a place that developed its own way that just designed its own modernity and resulted in being the most technologically advanced country on the planet i mean that to me was so thrilling so that was denai guerrera who plays okoye head of the dora malaje the fierce women, fighters, protectors of the king in Black Panther. Well, it's interesting, too. I think you can talk about Black Panther in the context of China as well. Uh, I wrote a piece about this that uh, listeners can easily find online. And one of the points that I mentioned is that China is the major player right now in global cinema, and it's a major market as well for Hollywood exports. And I think that it's interesting to compare Black Panther to the Chinese movie Wolf Warrior II, which also has an African backdrop and probably made more money in Africa than Black Panther. And I think that in terms of the promoting and pushing of Black Panther, particularly by Disney, I see that in the context of this Chinese challenge in terms of global cinema. Wow. Okay. Yeah, and I also want to give a shout out to Boots Riley. Sorry to bother you. It was kind of kind of an indie film that maybe a lot of people didn't see, but certainly it made a mark. And as you said, was an ideological breakthrough in terms of challenging the economics and the the work lives in the United States. So, so we're on culture. We talked about Nancy Wilson, Aretha Franklin, Black Panther. While we are on culture and in Africa, maybe it's a good time to talk about the opening of the Museum of Black Civilization. A lot of people don't know about that. It's a real breakthrough. It's, once again, it's funded by China. And I should mention parenthetically that when National Security Advisor John Bolton gave his much-heralded speech on U.S. policy towards China just a few weeks ago, that once again, it was put in the context of trying to meet the challenge that China is presenting in Africa. And this Museum of Black Civilization is part of this Chinese challenge. In some ways, it's already the most significant museum on the African continent. It's led to a renewed push by countries like Senegal and other African nations to force Belgium, France, and other European colonizing powers to return artifacts and art to the African continent where they rightfully belong. And so this has been a very significant development. I remember when I was still at the Washington Post, I did a piece on stolen art and uh, it was an exhibit in New York. 
And I remember that being like so controversial, but it seemed to me common sense that, you know, the, the art was taken and it didn't belong to the people who were exhibiting, <laughs> exhibiting it. So, so I'm really happy to hear about that development and people uh, demanding their art. So on that culture note, we're going to take a brief break and then we'll be right back with more of our 2018 year in review. Stay with us. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam, and on the line is Professor Gerald Horn, our geopolitical analyst for On the Ground. And we're talking about 2018 and the biggest stories of the year. So let's move from culture in Africa to some of the political changes this year. We've talked about the developments in terms of economics there in terms of infrastructure, but there are all kinds of changes. So where do you want to start? Well, let's start with the most recent development, which is it appears that a free trade block is coming into effect rather shortly on the African continent that will reach from Cairo to the Cape, from Cairo to Cape Town, encompassing virtually every African nation which will seek to remove tariff barriers and other kinds of impediments to trade. It's one step closer to a unified Africa. And, of course, it's going to enormously benefit the two giants of the African continent, speaking of Nigeria, which will have elections rather shortly, and South Africa, which will be doing the same in 2019. Uh, Speaking of elections, uh, recall that just a few months ago there were elections in the much beleaguered nation known as Zimbabwe, and the ruling party, ZANU-PF, was able to triumph, even according to international observers. Uh, This followed in the wake of the toppling of the longtime leader, Robert Mugabe toppled in November 2017 in a kind of palace coup. There has been enormous pressure on Zimbabwe, not least because it sought to reverse the fruits of settler colonialism by taking back land from the European minority, which caused all hell to break loose, sanctions to be imposed upon that particular nation. But interestingly enough, number one, That particular move to reverse the fruits of settler colonialism obviously has impact for the United States, Canada, New Zealand, and Australia. And number two, despite the fact that we were constantly told that that land reform was not the reason 
for this pressure on Zimbabwe. The fact of the matter is that the countries whose human rights records were much worse than Zimbabwe, I'm speaking of Gabon and Cameroon and Equatorial Guinea, just to name a few, have yet to have the spotlight shown on them by the U.S. media or even by some of our friends on the left, for that matter. Well, another aspect of policy in Africa that has been the focus of organizers here is AFRICOM. And the Black Alliance for Peace recently produced an audio piece basically criticizing John Bolton's speech on Trump's Africa policy and asking people to sign a petition to oppose AFRICOM and to basically tell the U.S. to get out of Africa. So let's hear that. U.S. National Security Advisor John Bolton announcing a Prosper Africa initiative with no departure from U.S. foreign policy toward Africa. He simultaneously threatened China and Russia while heaping scorn upon African nations. Our siblings in African nations struggle to overcome the destruction caused by European colonization as well as the American interventions exemplified by the destruction of Libya, the destabilization of Somalia, and the fomenting of conflict in the Great Lakes region of Africa. Bolton's bluster against Chinese and Russian interference in Africa was born of panic and full of bald-faced lies. He made no mention of the U.S. Africa Command, AFRICOM, which has put most African nations under the military control of the United States. But even so, the United States lags behind China, which is investing in African infrastructure and forgiving debt demanded by the International Monetary Fund. It is Europe and the United States that have committed the greatest thefts ever since the 19th century scramble for the continent kicked off at the Berlin Conference of 1884-85. Bolton warned African nations to ally themselves to the United States or risk the threat of intervention or the end of foreign aid. Bolton views them as pawns in a superpower game, incapable of making any decisions on their own. According to Bolton, Africa has no rights that white-run nations need to respect. China and Russia have the right to engage with African nations and Africans have every right to do business with or ally themselves with the states of their choosing. They are already victimized by post-colonial interference and numerous attempts at independence have been thwarted for decades as leaders such as Patrice Lumumba and Thomas Sankara fell victim to Western meddling. Bolton's threats are proof that the United States has nothing to offer except the kind of hyper-militarization that sent Rwandan and Ugandan proxies into Congo, which resulted in the deaths of six million people. Donald Trump's administration is continuing the work of past presidents. John Bolton's screed proves the need for the Black Alliance for Peace's demand that the United States disband AFRICOM and remove its influence from the continent. The Black Alliance for Peace calls upon the U.S. Congressional Black Caucus to hold hearings on the impact of U.S. militarization in Africa. Black Alliance for Peace calls for an end to AFRICOM and to all foreign interference in the affairs of African nations. Sign our petition to shut down AFRICOM. tinyurl.com slash shutdownafricom. Learn about our U.S. Out of Africa campaign. blackallianceforpeace.com slash U.S. Out of Africa. So that's an announcement produced by Black Alliance for Peace. And it reminded me that just yesterday, uh, someone showed me an article circulating online claiming that China will take over a major port in Kenya soon because Kenya has failed to pay the debt 
for the construction of this massive major port uh, constructed by China. And of course, this the story is falling into the same narrative that China is the new colonial power, that it is striking up deals with Africa with the ultimate intention of taking over African assets. Well, point number one, I saw that article. If you read it carefully, it says there's a potential Exactly. That's what, that, that's what I told the person who showed it to me. <laughs> and then point number two is that we need to realize that with this overdetermination and overstress on Moscow during the Cold War, which led to this deal with China, which led to foreign direct investment pouring into China from the United States and its allies, the United States has created this, what they consider to be a Frankenstein monster. I mean, there's talk about this debt trap that African nations have fallen into with regard to China, when the United States itself owes China more than a trillion dollars. And much of our tax dollars for years to come will be crossing the Pacific to the People's Bank of China. And I was watching this presentation from a think tank in Washington on this issue, and they were complaining that China has not joined the Paris Club, which is this club of North Atlantic creditor nations, and most of their debt, of course, is owed by nations in Africa and Latin America. But I understand why China has not joined the Paris Club, because these Paris Club creditors, like the United States, are actually in debt to China itself. So this is the complicated finance and economics that people need to think about. Okay, well, we have still more things to discuss from 2018. And where are we going to go next? In the last segment, we were talking about Africa, and what's the next big story from 2018, Gerald? Well, I think it's Russia. That is to say that perhaps because of this so-called Russiagate scandal, folks might have neglected the reality that relations between Washington and Moscow are headed south. They're very bad, not only in terms of this U.S. intervention in Ukraine and attempting to pulverize and punish Moscow by funneling arms to these uh, Ukrainians, but also these announcements by Vladimir Putin. Uh, There was a speech he made on March 1st, which you can easily find, where he announced this development of this new hypersonic missile that he says can evade U.S. missile defense. And in his final press conference in December 2018, he elaborated upon that. Uh, I think folks should pay attention to that. Okay, let's listen to a brief clip of Vladimir Putin talking uh, this month about Russia's new missile system. The new avant-garde missile system is invincible for today's and future air defense systems and missile defense systems. This is a big success and a big victory. So, Gerald, that's Vladimir Putin speaking this month, December 2018, about Russia's new missile system. In addition to sharpening its sword by developing these missiles, uh, Moscow is also hardening its shield. Its S-300 and S-400 missile defense systems are not only very important to Moscow's defense, but also have been exported to Syria, which has served to restrain somewhat Israeli aggression as well. And so I think that this deterioration of relations between Moscow and Washington is one of the major stories of 2018. 
Well, just as we were talking earlier about climate change and the U.S. not recognizing itself as a, guess, an historical emitter, and in that case, China is used as, a, as an excuse to back out of the Paris Climate Accord, it seems that this Russiagate or these new bad relationships with Russia are being used as an excuse to back out of the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces or INF Treaty this year. So I suppose that just dovetails with what you were saying. Well, absolutely it does. And I was heartened to see that former U.S. Secretary of State George Shultz was amongst those who objected to this maneuver by Washington to pull out of this treaty. It's quite dangerous, and obviously it gives an incentive to Moscow to further sharpen its sword and harden its shield. And speaking of Russiagate, there's actually been a lot of news around that this week. The subject that we covered last week, these two reports that allegedly showed that uh, Russia had targeted African Americans in the 2016 election, these with Russian bots on Instagram or Facebook. Well, as it turns out, the CEO of of New Knowledge has been actually caught using these same tactics himself and has had his Facebook page purged and banned because it's been discovered that new knowledge basically interfered in the election, the Senate election in Alabama, where Roy Moore was running. Roy Moore, of course, famously accused of being a pedophile. And so anyway, that's just been a new development and a very startling development because it's thrown into even a bigger question than we already had about the reliability of these reports alleging, you know, Russian interference in the election. Well, also, Reid Hoffman, the Silicon Valley billionaire, who it was said provided tens of thousands of dollars for that kind of dirty trick uh, that was played out on Facebook, has repudiated uh, what he's been associated with, which is going to cause even more problems. I should also say that Victor, Senator Doug Jones of Alabama, also repudiated uh, what he considered to be a dirty trick. But I guess that is a segue to another big story, which is the November 2018 midterm elections in the United States, where it's interesting that the Democrats did not necessarily run on the so-called Russiagate platform, even though they made a big to-do about it, and if you watch the Democratic Party-oriented cable stations like MSNBC and CNN, you might have been surprised that they didn't run on it. They ran mostly on health care, which may help to account for what has been reported as their success. But I should mention two contrasting points. One is that the Guardian of London reports that despite the Republican Party setback, the Republicans actually won by 10 points, the vote that's defined as, quote, white, unquote, which suggests that Mr. Trump still may have some staying power in 2019. And then number two, on a brighter note, the Congressional Black Caucus won a number of seats and will have its largest membership ever. And interestingly enough, a number of those who were elected in 2018, November, were elected from districts that are not majority black or majority black and brown. And I'm awaiting the analyses of political scientists, which will help to shed light on what will be the meaning of that epical development. 
You are listening to the voice of Professor Gerald Horn talking about the big news stories of 2018. We're going to take a brief break and we'll be right back. Stay with us. This is America. Don't catch you slipping now. Don't catch you slipping now. Look what I'm whipping now. This is America. Don't catch you slipping now. Don't catch you slipping now. Look what I'm whipping now. This is America. Don't catch you slipping now. Look how I'm living now. Police be tripping now. Yeah, this is America. Guns in my area. I got the strap. I gotta carry him. Yeah, yeah, I'ma go into this. Yeah, yeah, this is Gorilla. Yeah, yeah, I'ma go get the bag. Yeah, yeah, or I'ma get the pad. Yeah, yeah, I'm so cold like, yeah. Yeah, I'm so dull like, yeah. We gon' blow like, yeah. On the ground, on the ground show.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam, and I'm in conversation today with Professor Gerald Horn. He's on the ground's geopolitical analyst, and we're talking about 2018, the biggest stories of the year. And Gerald, I want to pick up where we left off before the music break, and you were talking about how Trump actually increased his share of the white electorate, of the white vote during the November 2018 midterm elections. And I want to pick up where you left off by talking about the rampant voter suppression, election fraud that happened during the election. Everyone I know thinks that Stacey Abrams was robbed of the Georgia governorship by Brian Kemp, who was the state secretary of state for Georgia and was actually in charge of running the, the election that he was a candidate in for governor. And uh, had engaged in massive voter suppression during his time in office, and that continued through the election. And we know that there's some ongoing investigations happening in North Carolina. We can't forget the people of Wisconsin who voted in Democratic governor, state attorney general, and the Republican Wisconsin legislature has systematically stripped these people of many of the powers they would have to govern the state as officials had in the past. Here in D.C., voters approved a measure, Initiative 77, to raise the wages of tip workers, and their vote was overturned by the D.C. Council. And in addition, many other Grassroots organizing by people in D.C. has been overturned either by the mayor or the D.C. council or both. So what I'm seeing all around the country, locally, nationally, is this disregarding of the electorate and the the voting process. And I, I can't help but connect this to the things that we've talked about on the show uh, this year in terms of the growth and consolidation of the ultra right wing Nazi and hate groups, the uh, election of Bolsonaro in Brazil. Can't forget the uh, wanton killing of Palestinians in Gaza during the Great March of Return. And at the same time, Israel adopting the divisive Jewish nation state law, which basically 
makes non-Jews second-class citizens and is extremely anti-democratic in what is you know, often touted as the Middle East only democracy. So I think that all of these really regressive moves against what are supposed to be guaranteed democratic rights, you know, the right of your vote here in the United States being ignored, overturned, thwarted, and then internationally, where people don't necessarily have these these so-called rights, just um, complete denial of, of basic human rights and international law. And I think that this has to be a story for 2018. You are absolutely correct. And I think what we need to realize is that puts wind in the sails of the Trump faction here in Washington that we should also include in terms of this sad litany that you just reported on uh, what happened in Pittsburgh at the synagogue in terms of the massacring of people worshiping. Uh, which is becoming all too common in this country, this, that is to say this ultra-right-wing violence, which gives uh, new meaning, it seems to me, to how the elections are being reported. That is to say, the midterm elections, November 2018, reported as this grand anti-Trump victory, but I think we need to peer deeper beneath the surface to get a better analysis. All right. I guess we could stay stateside and go to our next story. I believe the nomination or confirmation of Brett Kavanaugh. This is Kavanaugh speaking before the Senate after being accused by Professor Christine Blasey Ford of sexual assault when they were both teenagers. This whole two-week effort has been a calculated and orchestrated political hit fueled with apparent pent-up anger about President Trump and the 2016 election, fear that has been unfairly stoked about my judicial record, revenge on behalf of the Clintons, and millions of dollars in money from outside left-wing opposition groups. This is a circus. The consequences will extend long past my nomination. The consequences will be with us for decades. Again, that was Brett Kavanaugh speaking before the U.S. Senate after being accused by Professor Christine Blasey Ford of sexual assault while they were in high school. And that was a major story for 2018. Gerald. Well, one of the big stories of 2018 and 2017 is the packing of the courts. Not only the U.S. Supreme Court with Brett Kavanaugh in the fall of 2018 and Neil Gorsuch in 2017, but the numerous district court judges, federal district court judges who are being rammed through the Senate uh, by Mitch McConnell of Kentucky and with the acquiescence, I should say, in some cases of the minority leader, uh, Senator Chuck Schumer of New York, uh, this question of packing the courts, it seems to me is going to be a ticking time bomb that will be exploding periodically for the next few decades. The the actual confirmation of Kavanaugh was a major, major, major issue, not only around the country, but especially here in D.C. The streets were filled with massive demonstrations, passionate demonstrations. And it was very interesting because I saw these uh, women's marches mainly being characterized as mobs. And... 
it allowed a lot of the right-wing pundits to equate peaceful protesters, people engaging in civil disobedience, which is allowed under the First Amendment, and compare them to violent mobs. I think there was very little violence, um, very little, if any, but because they were loud and boisterous and passionate about opposing Kavanaugh's nomination and confirmation, they were termed this way. So I have a clip uh, from Tawana Burke speaking during those days of demonstration. I'm going to go to that now. This is what the movement is. And so that was Tawana Burke speaking at one of the many grassroots-led demonstrations that week. And as an historian, I mean, when you look back at what was happening on the streets versus what was happening inside the, the Senate, what do you want to say about that? Well, on the one hand, I think that the protest against Kavanaugh was propelled in no small measure by the preceding year's issue, which was the Me Too movement, that is to say the attack justifiably on Hollywood producer Harvey Weinstein and Charlie Rose of CBS and Jeff Fager of CBS and so many others uh, who have been placed in the dock because of sexual harassment. But on the other hand, it seems to me that the Kavanaugh case represents in some ways why the support for Mr. Trump has been so stalwart. That is to say that if you talk to the right wing, they support Mr. Trump not only because of tax cuts to the wealthy, not only because of deregulation, which, by the way, is really harming the U.S. environment, but also because of his ability to pack the courts with people like Brett Kavanaugh, which is a long-term right-wing investment that will be paying dividends to them for some years and decades to come. From here, we we may go we may go back overseas. Uh, the coverage of the Kavanaugh hearing and nomination process was part of the story, also. And this year, we had a major incident involving the apparent murder of a Washington Post columnist, Jamal Hashokji. So why don't we talk about that and then talk about other issues related to media? Well, I found it very telling that Time Magazine, in terms of its so-called person of the year, put the focus on journalists under attack. And of course, they mentioned Mr. Khashoggi, but also what happened at the newsroom in Annapolis, Maryland, where you had a number of journalists who were killed. It also raises the question of the attacks on the press by Mr. Trump, who has popularized the term fake news, has had a particular penchant for attacking uh, black women journalists in particular, uh, not only for urban radio, but also for CNN. And I should also say that the Khashoggi murder also puts the spotlight on Saudi Arabia and its corrupt deals with the Trump family. 
in terms of real estate and in terms of other kinds of investments that presumably the special counsel Robert Mueller will help to uncover, but it also puts the spotlight and the floodlights on its genocidal war in neighboring Yemen, which even the U.S. Senate most recently was moved to question. And I dare say that all of this pressure on Saudi Arabia may be having an impact because the latest news from there is a cabinet reshuffle with some of the closest aides to the de facto ruler, Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince, basically being shown the door and being sacked. So I guess the message there is to keep the pressure on Saudi Arabia. Well, we are heading into the home stretch with our 2018 year in review with Professor Gerald Horn. We're going to go to a brief break and be right back. Stay with us. Happy talk, keep talking, happy talk. Talk about things you'd like to do. You gotta have a dream if you don't have a dream. How you gonna have a dream come true? Talk about a moon floating in the sky Looking like a lily on a lake Talk about a bird learning how to fly Making all the music he can make Talk about things you'd like to do You gotta have a dream If you don't have a dream How you gonna have a dream come true This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital I'm Esther Ivarum And I'm in the final segment of our 2018 Year in Review with Professor Gerald Horn. And Gerald, I wanted to follow up your discussion about the apparent murder of Jamal Hashokchi and the fact that that case has really, it's had more to do with Saudi Arabia than press freedom and intimidation of the press and violence against the press. But on the other hand, you know, uh, the case of Julian Assange is directly related to freedom of press issues, freedom of speech issues. And this week, I believe the United Nations Human Rights Office of the High Commissioner said that Julian Assange should be freed and that he should not be extradited to the U.S. Also, uh, there was news that members of the German parliament visited Assange. And so those who have been rallying for his release and for his freedom, you know, have a, a bit of good news here at the end of the year because he's been holed up in the Ecuador embassy in London and really his health is deteriorating and you know, he's had to turn over the reins of WikiLeaks to, you know, others to, to run. So, I mean, I think that that's a major development in terms of the prosecution of a journalist, which which doesn't get the same kind of support as, you know, Jim Acosta being dismissed from the White House. You know, none of these corporate media have come to the 
to rally around Julian Assange because he's kind of caught up in their their myths over Russiagate. And that allows us to segue into Ecuador because the new leader in Ecuador obviously is not as favorable to Mr. Assange as the previous leader, Mr. Correa, which is one of the reasons why Mr. Assange is encountering so many difficulties now. And speaking of Ecuador, of course, allows us to talk about the enormous pressure that's been placed on Venezuela, which is continuing. Uh, The latest news is that uh, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo is headed to Colombia, and I dare say that the dirty tricks and skullduggery targeting Caracas will be on the agenda when he meets the leader of Colombia in a few days. And you've already mentioned the very disturbing election in Brazil that led to the ascension of Mr. Bolsonaro. But at the same time, we would be remiss if we did not mention the Mexican election, uh, which was a solid victory for progressive forces with the rise of AMLO, uh, Lopez Obrador, the new leader of Mexico, not to mention the apparent smooth transition in Cuba, which had led to the fact that for the first time since 1959, someone not named Castro is leading a socialist Cuba. So I guess that's an appropriate marker for 2018. Because I, I would also like to, you know, talk about the positive, you know, even though we talked about the tremendous carnage in Gaza as people headed out on the great march of return, I still, I feel that it's such a victory for the Palestinian people to be so brave to, to demand their rights. I just received an email from the Palestine Solidarity Campaign that this week on the 10th anniversary of Operation Cast Lead, which was, of course, Israel's assault on Gaza, which killed, you know, more than 1,000 Palestinians in three weeks. This movement, the BDS movement, has scored this major victory. And that is that HSBC has announced that they have divested in full from Elbit Systems, which is Israel's largest private armed security firm. And this is the firm that markets their weapons as battle-tested because they test them on Palestinian civilians in Gaza. So, you know, these these Israeli arms companies, they're able to say, you know, look, look and see the kind of damage they do, these special bullets that open up inside a person's body and just really horrific, just horrible weapons by this horrible company. And then also the Yellow Vest movement in France. I know we haven't had a chance to really talk about it, but uh, this is a movement that started out of a protest against high gas prices or a gas tax imposed by the Macron government. And the tax was not going to really help in the transition to a green economy. It wasn't really going to help France become a cleaner, greener environment. It was just basically compensating for the fact that, you know, the rich people there have received so many tax breaks. So I consider that a major movement to watch in 2019 and a plus for progressive forces. You know, I understand that it's a leaderless movement. It may not be, you know, we'll have to see and watch, but it's certainly, I think, a positive mo- a movement when people are in the streets. Well, it also helps to 
give further meaning to a line uttered by Michael Moore, the filmmaker, in one of his documentaries a few years ago, where he suggested that in France, the rulers tend to be nervous and apprehensive about the people, whereas in the United States, the people oftentimes are nervous and apprehensive about the rulers, particularly those in Washington. And I think that this uh, Yellow Vest movement helps to underscore that point. And concerning BDS, uh, I may be wrong, but I'm getting the impression that the mainstream press is not as hostile to that movement as it may have been in recent years. I'm thinking of the editorial boards of various newspapers who've criticized Senator Ben Cardin of Maryland for his attempt to uh, pass a law that would basically uh, harm and damage, if not eliminate, the BDS movement. So uh, let's hope my perception is accurate. So finally, I, I don't want to move to 2019 before we acknowledge you know, the outrage over children here in the U.S. still kidnapped and separated from their parents. And now two children have died in U.S. custody in the last three weeks. Uh, two young young people, um, uh, seven-year-old Jacqueline Carl McKean and early Christmas Day, eight-year-old Felipe Gomez Alonso, also from Guatemala. And I think the, the level of concern and, and outrage by the public, it gives me hope that Americans can still have sympathy, have empathy, and not be caught up in the anti-immigrant hysteria uh, whipped up by the Trump administration. And if it's not through children that people can have sympathy and empathy, I have, you know, very little hope for uh, Americans, but right now I still have hope. Well, what you're talking about is also an implicit condemnation of the Organization of American States headquartered in Washington, D.C., I think it's fair to say that if this kind of human rights violation was taking place at the behest of Cuba, there'd be round-robin meetings at the OAS about this tragedy. But since it involves U.S. imperialism, and since the OAS is basically a puppet of Washington, they're quite quiet, as quiet as a church mouse, in fact. This is On the Ground, on thegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. I'm Esther Averam, and I'm in conversation with Professor Gerald Horn, and we are winding up our talk about 2018, looking back, and now we're going to look forward. So, Gerald, as you look to 2019, what are you going to watch for? Well, so many things. I hardly know where to start. Obviously, we'll be awaiting the report by the special counsel, uh, Robert Mueller. Press reports suggest that in February he'll be issuing his report, uh, presumably, or perhaps that may lead to impeachment proceedings. But once again, since Mr. Trump's base is not cracking, I'm not sure how far those proceedings will progress, at least in terms of actually removing him from office through a two-thirds vote in the U.S. Senate. Certainly the elections that are taking place in Nigeria and South Africa, the continued struggle of the labor movement and the fight for 15 and the fight for occupational safety and health uh, has to be high on the agenda as well as union organizing drives, which ultimately it seems to me will be the savior for the progressive movement in this country. 
Well, I will be uh, looking to see how the Green New Deal unfolds, being proposed and championed by our uh, representative-elect, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. And also, I do know from covering the Veterans Day actions around, you know, against war, that uh, many activists are gearing up to greet NATO <laughs> uh, with an anti-NATO protest in April when a NATO is scheduled to meet here in D.C. And also that same month may be very important for the climate movement because of Earth Day and the ongoing tradition of the March for Science. And so those are some things that I know I'm looking forward to. But like you said, there's so much. So I've been speaking with our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn. Thank you so much for joining me, not only today, Gerald, to talk about 2018, but for joining me all year on on the ground to have conversations about what's happening in the world, what's happening in the U.S. from a progressive perspective. Well, thank you for inviting me. And that will do it for today's show and for this year on On the Ground. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital on Pacifica Radio. Thanks again to Gerald Horn and all those who have contributed their time and talent to the show this year. Chantel James, Lydia Curtis, Afra Abdullah, Pete Tucker, and Floyd DJ Wahid Aaron. And a special thanks to those who have joined our Patreon community. The music we played this hour included Think by Aretha Franklin, This is America by Childish Gambino, and Happy Talk by Nancy Wilson and Cannonball Adderley. You can write us, support us, and listen to all of our current and past shows on our website we maintain, onthegroundshow.org. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and we are on iTunes and Google Play under the title WPFW On The Ground. Thanks to the Chief Board Operator at WPFW, Michael Nacella, and thank you for listening, all of you out there, for all the stations and affiliates airing on the ground, including WBAI in New York, WRFG in Atlanta, KPFT in Houston, WKM in Montgomery, Alabama, WXIR in Rochester, New York, KCPB in Modesta, California, WPPM in Philadelphia, PA, KCEI in Taos, New Mexico, KBOO in Portland, Oregon, WLLP in Palinville, New York, KODX in Seattle, Washington, WXOJ in Florence, Massachusetts, WRWK in Richmond, Virginia, and KWRK in Fairbanks, Alaska, and also Workforce Rising Radio. I'm Esther Averam. Until next time in the new year in the 1-9, keep raising your voice. Peace.